Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll. In this episode, you'll hear part one of my conversation with Sarah Zarellin, Assistant Director of the Writing Across the Curriculum Program at Appalachian State University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll, and I am so excited today to introduce Sarah Zarellin. Sarah Zarellin is the Assistant Director of the Writing Across the Curriculum at Appalachian State University. How did I do, Sarah? <laughs> Thank you so much, Kelly. Okay. That was perfect. That was awesome. Thanks. Before really our call to be started today, we were discussing the pronunciation of Appalachian State University and how in different areas, different places are pronounced different ways. And I grew up in Virginia and still had that a bit off. So Sarah was coaching me before we got started today. And I greatly appreciate that. Hope, hopefully, I did it justice. <laughs> so, Sarah. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, 100%. It was perfect. Now, everybody listening knows it's, it's Appalachian. Appalachian. Uh, and I was teasing because I think yeah. I've been getting away with this for so long because we were working with this school for close to a decade, I believe. And I, I've been getting away with this because I've been calling it App State. So it's been my little abbreviated tone. But I'm I'm so glad to know the correct mm -hmm. pronunciation moving forward from here, even though I'm probably still going to call it App State. Apologies ahead of time. <laughs> I, think, I think either works. We're just, we're just, we're just trying to get the word out. It's actually know, about a really important part of our conversation today. Because as someone who is the assistant director of writing across the curriculum, words are quite important. So I thought to kick things off today, it would be fun for you to talk a little bit about what mm -hmm. your role entails for listeners that might not be so familiar with what writing across the curriculum really means. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. It can mean a lot of things. So actually, it's it's great to sort of talk about it, what it means in a particular context. Um, so just really generally, writing across the curriculum has a, a sort of a few foundational tenets, I guess, um, that are maybe kind of housed in the name, but harder to think about than we might imagine. And that really is just that writing happens in all spaces across learning, in all disciplines, in all fields. And that it, it happens um, in different ways in those spaces. And so it's the responsibility of everybody working across the curriculum, whether that's in K through 12 or whether that's in higher education, to teach writing in, in those areas and to use writing to help students learn as they're working through new ideas and concepts in different disciplines. So that's the kind of like foundational tenet housed within that language of writing across the curriculum. In my particular role, um, I'm super lucky. I came into a job in what was already a really established writing across the curriculum program that was started before I got here. Um, at Appalachian State, we have a vertical writing uh, curriculum 
that actually won the Four C's Award in, I think, 2011 or 2012. Um, again, it was before my time, so I can't really take credit for it. Um, that was all the, the founder, Georgia Rhodes, um, and our current director, uh, Beth Carroll. But they, they started this curriculum to, to sort of ensure that students would be writing at every level while they were here. So students take a first-year writing course that's a, kind of tracks along with what students take at other universities. It's introduction to expository writing, writing in college, um, thinking about writing and social change right now is a really um, big thing um, that I think our, that program is, is infused with thinking about. Then they take in their second year an introduction to writing across the curriculum course with the goal being that they really learn to start thinking about how um, discourse is different in different spaces and how genres change according to audience and purpose um, and within different disciplinary spaces, right? So that might be where a student thinks about the fact that a lab report is quite different than a personal narrative, for instance. Um, and then in their third year, they take a writing in the disciplines course in their major. And so that's taught by the anthropology professor or the chemistry professor and is really intended to introduce students to what writing looks like in the field or discipline that they've chosen um, as their major. Um, and then their senior year, they do a capstone. And that, again, can look enormously different depending on the field. That's everything from sort of internship work that students develop a portfolio um, to to reflect on and to kind of collect all of the observational work maybe that they've done during that internship to something that's much more traditional. Like I think a lot of the um, humanities students, you know, they end up writing these big sort of seminar papers um, or honors theses um, as their capstone projects. So it can look very different depending on the student's area, but um, that's kind of what the curriculum is. And my job is really just to support that. So it's a lot of faculty development work, helping faculty and the disciplines become comfortable with teaching writing and thinking about writing as something that they can teach and not just assign. And also helping um, helping people across the curriculum. I mean, it's largely faculty and the disciplines, but also, you know, writing faculty know this. So I'm sort of preaching to the choir when I talk to them. But um, thinking about writing to learn, how can you use writing in your classes to help students really engage with the material and, and remember it better and longer and apply it in ways that um, will stick. So that's most of that job. And then, so part of my job is also um, in the writing center. Um, and so he, in that space, again, I'm sort of on the flip side of that, but working with writers um, on their projects. So in the writing center, are you working mostly with students and then with the consultation, you're working more closely with the, the faculty? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the writing center really varies. Actually, um, we have, I think, three, three or four professional, four professional consultants at this point. Um, and, you know, all that means is, is that we're not students and we have degrees and other things. Um, but so a lot of my work, um, because I, I think right now I'm the only professional consultant with a PhD, is working with our graduate students. So a lot of graduate students come in working on their sort of um, either their dissertations or their theses. Um, and then we, we do offer faculty support. Obviously, we work with fewer faculty than students, but a lot of my work in the writing center is with um, kind of more advanced writing which is nice, but I also occasionally get to work with undergraduate students on their like early projects. And that's really fun and rewarding because you get to sort of 
see students who think that they're coming to the writing center because they need some sort of remedial assistance realize that like actually it's great practice for them to to start to learn how to read their own writing more carefully. Um, and you get to see that growth and confidence, which is cool. And I thought it was interesting to see um, through your role in uh, writing across the curriculum, the just wide variety of disciplines that you're supporting. And um, I was curious, as you're working mm -hmm. with faculty in some of these different disciplines, you spoke a little bit about how you know, you're doing some coaching and consultation really about how they can also feel like they're contributing to teaching writing. And I was wondering if you could share if there was any specific faculty members that you might have worked with and what their kind of aha moment must have been when it clicked for them, even though that might not have been something that they were doing before. Yeah, so one of the things that we do um, is offer class visits. Mm -hmm. um, and so faculty can request to have somebody from WAC come into their class and um, teach students about uh, plagiarism or teach students about um, how to summarize um, material or how to run a peer review, right? A lot of faculty are very, like, they think the idea is cool, but they're sort of uncomfortable doing it. And so we can, like, offer an example. And oftentimes that is an interesting moment because they've sort of invited us into their classroom to be the writing experts, but that is the jumping off point for a conversation with them, right? To say, sure, we'd be happy to do this class visit. Um, before we do it, can we sit down and, and have a look at your syllabus and your assignment and like talk through your goals for, for this assignment, for this, this piece of writing that you're asking students to do? And it becomes this, um, that, that's typically where the aha moment happens. And it doesn't always happen in that first meeting. Sometimes it's later on, but it is that transition from thinking about I assign writing to I teach writing. Um, and oftentimes that's the moment when we ask like, oh, you have this really cool assignment, like this, this is great. And you have these really interesting goals. Um, where do you teach students how to do, do these things, right? And it's the verb, it's the shift in the verb um, from thinking about, well, I have this writing assignment that I give students to, um, oh, like I need to teach them how to do this. And of course, they, I mean, every, all the faculty are teachers. They know, they know how to teach their content matter, but they often don't think about writing as part of that. And so one of the conversations that we really like to have, and I'm trying to think of like a perfect aha moment, and I, I guess one that I had a few years ago, and this happens a lot, um, but I think that this was a particularly valuable moment because it was a group of faculty and that's, we like to work with people from different disciplines and bring them together. And so this was like eight faculty from like eight different areas. I think there was um, anthropology, um, political science. I'm trying to think who else. There was some people from education, a couple of people from education, biology, I think I'm forgetting someone, so I feel bad about that. But anyway, we were everybody was sort of talking about the question of what is good writing to them, right? And my role in that position is really just to keep asking questions like, okay, so clear writing is good writing. Well, what does clear writing look like in anthropology? And what does clear writing look like in biology? And what does it look like in government and justice studies or political science? Um, and of course, there are some overlaps there. But there are also really big differences, right? And so the kind of like passive voice that you would see 
um, in a lot of scientific writing um, where people are writing up a study that they've done is exactly the opposite of what um, in this particular space, this faculty member from government and justice studies is looking for. And they use the Mm -hmm. phrase plain language, Mm -hmm. right? They're talking about professional writing and writing um, policy. And so they want it to be very active and very engaged. And so they had they had this moment of wrecking of suddenly seeing, like, oh, when I tell my students, um, I want them to analyze this um, concept, right, and its application in this space, and write a policy brief about it. Um, I'm asking them to do something very, very different than what they're asked to do when they're asked to analyze a process in a biology lab and write a lab report about it, even though students could potentially take a biology class and a government justice studies class in the same semester. And even though a lot of the same verbs are used, like the word Mm -hmm. analyze, right? Um, And so that was kind of this moment of, of recognizing like, oh, when I teach this assignment, I need to teach what I mean when I use these terms, right? So that's always like a great moment. I think. And, and, and then it's, you know, when you get to follow up at the end of the semester and be like, so how, you know, what was the result? Like, what did you get from students that made you see what was valuable and how you changed the way you were approaching? Yeah. Can writing? you think of a particular example that someone brought to you about how the writing of the students may have improved or evolved as a result of some of the changes that they made? Um, yeah. I think, um, so really interesting, I was working with somebody from anthropology last year and we were, uh, we had this really cool, I was very excited about it. Our institutional research office gave us a grant to um, pay a few faculty to participate in what we were calling an inclusive Mm -hmm. writing assessment working group. And it was just a few faculty and we met once a month and talked through um, we did some reading together and just some chatting about like, what does it mean to to assess writing inclusively in your different spaces? And faculty brought different assignments um, that they were interested in editing or revising in some way and shared them with each other. And we kind of worked through those. And there was one faculty member who um, was like already on board with this idea of using writing to learn and kind of... Um, having his students that it was in anthropology. And so they were, he wanted them to really get into this assignment and explore these ideas and not obsess too much over, you know, their grammar and their punctuation. And and he was like, I, I don't feel like I'm good at those things. So those aren't things that I want to mark when I'm teaching. I feel like that's like, I always have to get support with that level of proofreading when I'm working on my own publications. So um, that's just not something I really want to focus on in my class. Um, but I really want them to get into the application of ideas. And so we were reviewing his peer review and how he was doing peer review in his class and um, noticed that, you know, his one of the kind of frames that he was using for the peer review was to have students comment on each other's grammar and punctuation and these things that he said he didn't care about at all. And so we kind of, as a group, worked through, like, what would it look like if you asked different questions in the peer review? And it was more focused on the kinds of things, A, that you're looking for later when you're giving the students feedback, but also like the big outcomes that you've set for the assignment. And so he revised that peer review to sort of focus on the outcomes, right, that he had delineated for the assignment and ended up getting like student responses that were a lot more engaged. Students had a lot more confidence, I think, to, and I don't know, I mean, I, this, this is kind of feel weird, like reporting on somebody else's work, but 
it was stuff they had talked about in the assignment, right? And so it kind of goes back to that idea of like, students get more confidence when they're being graded on the things that are focused on in class, right? And when they're taught the things in class that they're being graded on, when there's that alignment. And so I think the peer review, the attitude toward the peer review shifted because it felt more valuable. Um, It was focused on what they had talked about in class, what they were learning in class, and also what they were being evaluated for by their professor at the end of the I can imagine that was a big shift for the students. You know, we all understand that the grammar and punctuation is important and something that we need to learn, but I can imagine the the value add for the students to have a review with their peers that really got into the kinds of content and ideas that they were exploring added more learning for them, um, not only with the feedback that they got from their peers, but also when they were providing feedback to others. So that's exciting to hear. Thank you for sharing that. story about someone that you were working Mm -hmm. with at the institution. So when we were um, preparing for uh, chatting today, one of the things that I learned about you was that you had also done your undergrad there. And were you studying, um, you know, were you majoring in writing at the time? Or is that something that came about later for you? That's funny. Yeah, we call it the boonerang. <laughs> it's it's when you live in Boone and then you leave and and come back. Um, and it's sort of like a fa- it's a famous term here because so many people do it. Um, but yeah, so I I was a transfer student actually. I started college at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but I was like a public school kid from East Tennessee, and I just that was not an environment that I fit in well. Um, in a sort of very small liberal arts school. Um, and I, my chemistry teacher actually in high school had gone to App State and had always talked about how great it was. And so I was like my first year of college thinking I really need to transfer somewhere. Like I, I want to spend more time outside. I think I need like a bigger community. Um, and came up here to visit, um, and, and sort of fell in love with it over a weekend and, and, you know, did my application and transferred. And I, I mean, I loved it. I still love it. My entire goal after I graduated was to find my way back somehow. Um, so my academic trajectory looks a lot different than a lot of people's because, yeah, I, I was sort of driven by a by a place, by wanting to be in a place rather than wanting to have a particular kind of job. But when I was, I had a lot of majors. I'll just go mm-hmm. ahead and say that. I think I had a couple at Rhodes before I transferred. And then I came here and... I, I'm just a very naturally curious person and I can find almost anything interesting if I can like get into it. So, um, I had lots of majors. I, at the time really thought that I wanted to be, um, like an embedded journalist and kind of travel the world and go to, um, like war torn countries and, um, uh, I don't know. I, I was, I had this romantic notion, right. Of, of sort of telling stories that weren't being told. And I, re- I don't honestly know where that came from, but I was, I loved journalism. Um, I read a ton, like a weird amount of journalism, maybe for a high school student. <laughs> um, and I, I was just really into that idea. Um, so I was a journalism major and I also really just loved reading fiction. And so I ended up with a double major in journalism and English because I was taking so many English classes just for fun that it worked out that way. Um, but I remember numerous um, meetings because I had to have advisors in both programs where they 
would say, you know, you really like this class has nothing to do with anything. You know, I'd be taking like some some random <laughs> political science class or something. They're like, this doesn't have anything to do with your majors. And like, yeah, but it looks really cool. So and I was really lucky because I, I went to college during a time when that was possible. Um, they they started charging for extra credits at some point later on. So I wouldn't have been able to afford to do that um, later, but it was possible for me when I was undergrad. And I stayed here and got my master's um, okay. here and then left and did yeah. some other stuff for a while. But I, yeah, I love it. Well, and it makes a lot of sense that, you know, you have this natural curiosity for so many different things that you're able to kind of tap into all of the different disciplines that you're working with now, but with that common kind of thread with writing. And it was fascinating uh, listening to you talking about, you know, when you're providing this kind of consultation to faculty members and um, giving them some ideas about oftentimes just slight reframing for what they're already doing within their classrooms. You know, they've already got these assignments that they've developed or progress that they're going to introduce to the students, but sometimes it's just the way in which they're introduced or um, the kind of feedback that the students are provided that shifts it from mm -hmm. what they were doing before to something that is more focused on teaching writing. And I find that it's so similar in uh, some of the best kinds of implementation of e-portfolios that we see at schools as well, where you know, on the one hand, you may have some programs that are just kind of handed this technology <laughs> and not really given guidance on how to integrate it into their teaching. And in those cases that the um, very often the e-portfolio might become an assignment within the class that they just kind of say, okay, this is something that you're supposed to do. But it's not really connected to the content or what the students are really learning within the class unless faculty members are given some kind of guidance in how these really do relate to what they're already doing, whether they've got this signature assignment that students are going to be working on, or maybe they already have students creating a final project, but they've been doing it in PowerPoint and they wanted it to be something that could be more easily shared. Or maybe they haven't introduced media into the projects before. It's always been a kind of written um, Word document or something like that. So it, it was fun to hear how there's some intersections there with how um, faculty members can learn how to kind of adapt to different kind of modes and, um, you know, that your portfolio is, of course, tightly coupled with writing as a um, way of communication as well. So I, I, I've known you for quite a while through your work with ePortfolios at the institution. And I was curious, especially with your background and some of your focus, particularly around writing and technology, how you might be using this particular kind of technology with your students or with your work with the faculty members. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so 
I think e- e-portfolios were sort of an easy um, transition for me because when I was a master's student, um, we portfolio teaching had was, I think it was being introduced at that time in the program. And when I was a master's student here, um, the assistantships for master's students were teaching assistantships. And so we took a class um, that was, you know, introduction to teaching composition, and we created portfolios in that class. And we created that we were kind of introduced to the idea of portfolios in that sense, and then were asked to use them in our classes. That was in mm-hmm. like 2003. <laughs> and so we were doing paper portfolios and students and myself included would save all of our work over the course of the semester and stick it in these giant three ring binders and write um, this reflective cover letter about the work and sort of situating it in the context of our learning. And, and I remember like you could walk through the hallways of, of Sanford, which is where the English department's housed at the end of the semester. And you would just see giant boxes, right? People would bring in moving boxes for students yeah. to dump their portfolios. In, and then you would see all the faculty like carrying these giant boxes out to their cars to take home and grade the portfolios. So that was my experience. And I loved them then. Um, and I loved them so much that actually when I started my PhD program, the first semester I was there, I wrote cover letters to all of my seminar papers and then didn't understand why my professors were like, "What? Did, why did you write us this four page letter about the work that you did for this paper? Like, we're going to read it on our own. And I was like, oh, I just really wanted you to know what I was thinking, like what I think I did well and what I have questions about. And, you know, I just really, I was, yeah, I was very naive. Um, but, but in a good way, I think, because I was, I, I was introduced at least to me and what felt like very early on the idea that like learning is a process and that you don't need to be embarrassed by what you don't know, but like develop skills to identify it, right? And, and that that is actually really valuable. And to me, that is the, that's what portfolios are, are really, really good for. And so um, I had, I was back actually at Appalachian in 2014. And um, the director of composition at the time um, Kim Gunter said, we're, we're going all in on e-portfolios, right? Like we're going to do e-portfolios. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Like, that sounds great. It's a portfolio, except you can do more stuff with it, right? It can be multimodal because students were doing multimodal projects, but they had no way to sort of celebrate those at the end of the semester or to like contextualize them within their learning because they didn't fit into a paper portfolio. And so, I mean, I was, it was easy to sell me on the idea Um, I also really loved the fact that you could situate reflection in different spaces and that it no longer was, had to be, I think it's still very effective, but it no longer had to be this one reflective piece encompassing everything, right? It could be spaced throughout, um, and focused on different things depending on the student's interest. So I really loved that. And from the technology side of things, and this maybe goes back to like the curiosity, um, I, um, again, this was just out of curiosity, like mostly curiosity. When I was at the University of Missouri, which is where I did my PhD work, I had an office mate my first year there. You know, you're just getting ready. You're just getting to know people and getting to know the program. Um, And he was responsible for maintaining the department's website. Um, And he was also in the military and he got called up to uh, go to Afghanistan. And so he was leaving. And we were office mates, right? So we would chat a lot about the like website work that he was doing. And I got really into the idea of like um, programming for the web. 
And the university, I, have, I never looked into how or why, or maybe this was common at the time, I don't know, but everybody had their own online space, right? That they could go build in and play on, on the university servers at the time. I guess that was like still affordable before everything blew up. And they offered free classes in HTML and PHP. And um, so I, I started taking them just for fun on the side because I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then he had to leave and he had just rebuilt this whole site in PHP. Um, and if you've ever built anything in PHP, you know, when you first do it, you, it breaks all the time um, <laughs> because you don't get it all right. And so I was, you know, sort of like playing a fix it role for like a year Um because you can't just like email yeah. the guy in Afghanistan when he's at work and be like, hey, could you tell me why you did it this way and how I could fix this? It was a lot of like learn by doing and breaking things and getting things wrong and, and just really figuring it out. And so that has always, that was like my, I guess my introduction to like technological play and like really playing with digital spaces. And I guess luckily, um, people in the department were really patient with me and didn't mind if sometimes the website didn't work properly. Um, but I, I sort of brought that with me when I came back here. And so I was, I think, more open to the idea than a lot of people who are scared of introducing something to their students that they don't fully understand, which I totally get. Um, I was more interested in like, okay, let's play with it. Yeah. Let's break it. Like what doesn't work? What, um, like, how can you make it do things that it wasn't de necessarily designed to do? How can you, um, like, remake it for yourself? And I, to me, that that notion of sort of remaking for yourself is, like, a huge value to ePortfolios, um, especially in the learning space. Like, I know some people really think about the showcase portfolio, the thing that you're taking with you to, like, go get a job or go get an internship. And I know that that has value and that's important, but I'm particularly committed to the idea of like a learning portfolio where it you're making it your own. Um, and that can look very, very different because all the people making them are yes. very, very different. Yes. Yeah. And I often talk about how it can really be a space for you to celebrate some of these, you know, quote unquote failures. Because unless we mess something up, what have we really learned? <laughs> Um, so what, what, right. Right. yeah, I mean, if, if you just did it all right the first time, you already knew it. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication a technology platform powering the most innovative ePortfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.